Hi, this is David. Welcome to episode 24 of Upward Journey Bible Study, where we study the Bible and theology. This episode focuses on learning some of the content and message of the Gospel of John, chapter 1. There are, there's also going to be some attention given to Bible versions and Bible study methods. The Gospel of John is the fourth book in the New Testament. It was written by John, the disciple and apostle of Jesus Christ. It has 21 chapters. This begins a series on the Gospel of John. Unless otherwise noted, all scripture quotations for this episode are taken from the World English Bible, Orthodox Version, because the World English Bible is in the public domain. To get the most out of this podcast, it would be good for you to take about five minutes to read John chapter 1. Let's get started. Before we look at the Gospel of John chapter 1, let us look at Bible translations and a little bit about Bible study. The prior series in this podcast focused on getting an overview of the Bible and learning the books of the Bible in order with a little about the content of the books of the Bible. This series will focus on the Gospel of John. This series will go more in-depth than the last series, and it will take several weeks to get through the Gospel of John. As noted above, I will be using the World English Bible because it is in the public domain. It is also a good translation of the Bible. The main thing I disagree with this version is that it includes the Apocrypha, uh, which are books I believe are not uh, inspired by God, but they are uh, worth reading and, and studying. This podcast also is not inspired by God, and like all attempts of trying to accurately teach God's Word, uh, it must be judged by the Bible itself. The World English Bible is based on the American Standard Version, which was an accurate translation of the Bible in the early 1900s, and because of its age, the American Standard Version is in the public domain. Because of copyright provisions and the need for permissions, my teaching is largely restricted. Overall, thus far I have found the World English Bible to be a good translation of the Bible. If it were not for copyright restrictions, I would likely be using the New American Standard Bible and the New King James Version for the study of John, or my own translation from the Greek. If time permitted, I could provide my own translation from the Greek, but I would still have to carefully check other translations to make sure that my translation was not too close to someone else's translation. For this reason, I am not even free to provide you with my own translation, staying as true to the original languages as I would like. While I am using the World English Bible for this podcast, I would encourage you to study along in a literal translation of the Bible, such as the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version. In fact, I would suggest using both because while both the New American Standard Bible and the New King James Version are literal translations of the Greek. They are based on different uh, manuscript traditions, and using both will help you see the manuscript differences. Alternatively, uh, always look at the footnotes or margin notes in your translation to see textual variants. However, you should have one major Bible version that you make your key version because studying that version over time 
will make scripture learning and memorization easier. As an example of textual variance, if you would look at John chapter 1, verse 18, some manuscripts refer to Jesus as the only begotten Son of the Father, and other manuscripts have the only begotten God of the Father. In other words, some manuscripts refer to Jesus as the Son of God in John 1.18, and others as God. There is no serious theological problem here, because elsewhere in Scripture, Jesus is referred to as the Son of God, and in other passages, he's referred to as God. Other translations are free variant translations. For example, for Bible study, I recommend using a literal translation of the Bible like the New American Standard Bible or the New King James Version or other literal translations. There are three basic categories of Bible translations. One category is literal translations. These translations try to translate as closely as possible the original words. Free variants, instead of translating the word literally as to its general meaning, focuses on what the translator believes that word means in that context. For example, one phrase in the Bible is the phrase, the love of God. A literal translation would render this as the love of God. This would be in the genitive case in Greek. There are various kinds of genitives. Two of the several kinds of genitives are subjective genitives and objective genitives. If it is a subjective genitive, the word after of would be the one doing the loving. So the love of God would mean God's love for us. If the love of God is an objective genitive, the word after of would be the object of the love. As an objective genitive, the love of God would mean that someone loves God rather than God loves us. A free variant translation might choose one of the above alternatives to make the sentence clearer and more precise, but they would have taken away the ambiguity, so you may never know of the other option. As an example of a subjective genitive, consider this sentence. The love of God was shown when he sent Jesus to die for our sins. There it is, God doing the one who love is doing the loving. An example of the love of God as an objective genitive would be, the disciples showed they had the love of God in their hearts when they kept God's commandments. Consider 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, which says, For the love of Christ constrains us, because we judge thus that one died for all, therefore all died. Does this mean that Christ's love for us constrains us? Or does it mean our love for Christ constrains us? A free variant translation would pick one of these two. A literal translation would leave it ambiguous as the World English Bible does in the verse I just quoted. Let us take another example. For example, the word flesh can refer to the human body. Let us compare Galatians chapter 2 verse 20 and Romans chapter 8 verses 8 to 9. 
Paul says in Galatians 2.20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I that live, but Christ lives in me. That life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Here Paul is saying he is living in the flesh, and the life he is living in the flesh is pleasing to God because he is using his flesh to serve God. The World English Bible here is staying close to the Greek, using the word for flesh as being translated flesh. But a free variant translation, instead of translating the word flesh as flesh, might translate it as human nature or human body. Paul is referring here to living out the Christian life in his human body. Now compare this with Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 9. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 9, Those who are in the flesh can't please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. In Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 9, the word flesh cannot mean the human body or human nature because he says these Christians are not in the flesh. Flesh in Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 9 does not mean the human body or human nature but rather human nature exercised independent of God and in opposition to God. Here the World English Bible literally translates flesh as flesh, as would other literal translations. However, a free variant translation might translate flesh in Romans chapter 8, verses 8 to 9 as sinful flesh or sinful nature or rebellious nature. The value of the free variant translation is that it makes the meaning clearer, but in doing so, the translators are choosing for you one of possible different meanings of the word flesh, and if you rely on that version, you may never be aware of the various possible interpretations. For this reason, for study purposes, I recommend using a literal translation for Bible study and using free variant translations as a balance to the literal translation. The third category of Bible versions would be thought translations and paraphrases. It is debatable whether paraphrases are translations or commentaries on the Bible. Paraphrases are easier to understand because they translate the thought or meaning of that verse as of scripture as understood by the one authoring the paraphrase. But if paraphrase of necessity involves a lot of interpretation of the Bible that often reflects the theological perspective, presuppositions of the paraphraser, or theological biases of the paraphraser. Some like to refer to thought translations as, transla uh, as translations instead of calling them paraphrases. They would distinguish a paraphrase from a thought translation and that a paraphrase would be a thought paraphrase of a translation of the Bible, not the original text. And a thought translation would be translated after studying the original languages, but focuses on translating the thoughts rather than word for word. I recommend viewing paraphrases and thought translations as commentary on the Bible. Good paraphrases and thought translations can be used as a basic quick commentary 
commentary, but lacked the depth of a good commentary on the Bible. Paraphrases and thought translations should not become your preferred Bible version. Paraphrases and thought translations should be critiqued by literal translations or the original languages. The Old Testament was originally written mostly in Hebrew, with parts of Daniel and Ezra originally written in Aramaic. The New Testament was originally written in Greek. If you don't know the original languages, I suggest you critique other Bible versions with the New American Standard Bible. If other versions are close to the New American Standard Bible, they are likely literal translations as well. The New King James Version is also a literal translation, but it is based on a different textual tradition than the New American Standard Bible. So comparing the New King James Version to other translations would not be a good guide because you would see differences not due to the translation, but based on the different manuscripts upon which they are based. However, the manuscript differences between the New King James Version and the New American Standard Bible mainly only applies to the uh, New Testament and not to the Old Testament. There are not that big uh, of a textual difference between versions of the Old Testament, that is, versions of the Hebrew and Aramaic. I would consider a version such as the New International Version as a free variant translation, but that's my personal opinion. You will have to decide for yourself. Some Bibles have an introduction that may explain the viewpoint of the editors of that version as to what kind of Bible version they claim their version to be. To rely upon non-literal translations is to bypass an important step in Bible study. It is best to study the Bible from a literal translation of the Bible and read a good commentary than waste your time on free variant translations and paraphrases. However, if you are simply reading the Bible rather than studying it, you may wish to read a free variant version. I would suggest never to use a paraphrase or thought translation of the Bible without first reading and trying to understand a literal translation or free variant translation to critique it by. If you are an adult and have a high school reading level, don't waste your time on thought translations and paraphrases. If you only have an elementary school reading level, you may want to read a thought translation recommended by someone who knows that version well and has critiqued its theological biases and perspectives and work hard to bring your reading level high enough to understand free variant translations than literal translations. I do not recommend studying from the King James Version unless you are an expert on 16th century British English. Words have changed meanings over time. I encourage those who like the King James Version to consider the New King James Version and the New American Standard Bible. Here are some examples of problems with the King James Version that comes from the fact that some words have changed their meaning from what the words meant in the 16th century in England. One example is when Jesus says, Suffer the little children to come to me. Suffer evidently meant in the 16th century to permit or allow, but today's suffer means to endure pain or affliction. Another misleading verse would be the 23rd Psalm, where it says, The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. 
One evidently meant in the 16th century to lack, but today it has more the meaning of desiring something. Another misleading term is the word master in reference to Jesus in the Gospels. Master evidently meant teacher in 16th century England, such as a schoolmaster. But today master is closer to the word Lord than to the word teacher. So the King James Version is misleading here when it's translating the word teacher as master. Also, the Holy Spirit is called the Holy Ghost in the King James Version, and today the term ghost is most more associated with the idea of a human spirit that lingers behind to spook or haunt people. If you prefer the textual tradition underlying the King James Version, you may want to consider the New King James Version. Better yet, it is better to do a little research and learn about textual variants and appreciate both the Greek textual history underlying the King James Version and the textual history underlying modern translations other than the New King James Version or the modern King James Version. Once you have picked your literal Bible translation, what is the next important step in Bible study? The next step is to read the that book of the Bible from page one of that book to the last page in that book, in order. And study in John, read from John 1, 1 to John chapter 21, verse 25. If possible, try to read the Gospel of John in one setting. It will likely take you about two hours or a little longer to carefully read John through in one setting. The next study, the next step in the study of John is to do a big picture outline of John. Then do an in-depth outline of each chapter of John. This will force you to think carefully about what you are studying. The next steps may take a little financial investment, such as buying a study Bible, a Bible dictionary, or Bible encyclopedia, a concordance, and a good commentary or two. However, you can do a lot with just a good literal Bible translation and outlining the book of the Bible you are studying. Now let us look at John chapter 1. Here are some key topics pointed out in John chapter 1. 1. Jesus is eternal. 2. Jesus is creator. 3. Jesus is distinct from God the Father. 4. Jesus is God. 5. Light and life are in Jesus. 6. Jesus is the light. 7. Jesus became fully man without ceasing to be fully God. 8. Jesus reveals God the Father. 9. Jesus is our Savior. 10. Jesus is the Messiah and Son of God. 11. Jesus knows our hearts. 12. Jesus is a teacher. 13. Jesus has a forerunner. and 14. Sharing the good news that Jesus is the Messiah. Let us look at the first two of these topics since they are closely related. One, Jesus is eternal and Jesus is creator. That Jesus is the creator of all things shows that he is eternal and not just from long ago. Also, the fact that Jesus is creator makes clear that Jesus is not just a God or a heavenly being like an angel, but equal with God the Father in his deity. Let us look at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. 
John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him. Without Him, nothing was made that has been made. Here Jesus is called the Word. He is said to be with God in the beginning. Likely this is referring to the creation of the world. These same words are found in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, which says that in the beginning God created the heaven and the earth. What are words? Words are an expression, manifestation, and revealing of thoughts. This is true of humans and of God. However, God is so powerful that he can create with his words. God can say, let there be light, and then there will be light. The Bible teaches that God the Father is the source of all things, and Jesus Christ is the means of all things. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 6, Yet to us there is one God, the Father, of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things, and we live through him. Jesus is the radiance of God the Father's glory. Jesus is the very image of God the Father's substance. And Jesus upholds all things by the word of his power. See Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3. Paul says about Jesus in Colossians chapter 1 verses 15 to 17, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in the heavens, and on the earth, visible things and invisible things, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things are held together. In short, God the Father is the source of all things, and Jesus Christ is the means of all things. Since Jesus created all things, he is not created, and he is eternal. Next, Jesus is distinct from God the Father. John 1.1 says, Jesus was with God. This means Jesus is distinct from God the Father since he was with him. Here, God is a title or name for God the Father. Jesus says in John 6 verse 38 that he came not to do his own will, but the will of God the Father. Jesus is not independent of God the Father. Jesus says he can do nothing of himself. He only does what he sees the Father doing. John chapter 5, verse 19. Jesus says that God the Father is greater than Jesus himself. John chapter 14, verse 28. John 1, 1 says that Jesus is God. That does not mean that Jesus is God the Father, but that he is God just like God the Father is God. Jesus is not, is not just a God, but God. Before we go further, let us take a closer look at the meaning of the word God and how the term is used to show both Jesus' equality in divinity with God the Father and his submission to God the Father. One of the main Hebrew words for God in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word Elohim. Elohim is plural in form, but sometimes it has a singular meaning and other times takes a plural meaning. Hebrew Plurals do not cor correspond exactly like English words do. Hebrew plurals can refer to 
more than one thing and thus functioned as the English plural, but Hebrew can use a plural form with a singular meaning. For example, in Genesis chapter 1, the word for heaven is plural in form, but possibly only singular in meaning. The Bible says in Genesis 1.1, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. Here, the Hebrew word for heaven is plural. Some English versions translate it as plural, and some as singular. The Old Testament was translated into Greek in about 200 BC. It is called the Septuagint. The Septuagint translated the Hebrew word for heaven, which is plural in form, uh, in the singular. Another plural form with a possible singular meaning is the Hebrew word for water. Water is plural in form, but can be singular in meaning. God can be plural in form and singular in meaning. This is, this is clear when the word God agrees with a singular verb. With a singular verb, the, the word plural in form is clearly singular in meaning. Often, Elohim, which is plural in form, refers to the one true God. A few times the plural form has a singular meaning in reference to a pagan god or goddess. The plural form can also have a plural meaning when referring to a number of false gods. Elohim is used in reference to the false god Dagon in 1 Samuel chapter 5, verse 7. Uh, the plural form of Elohim is used in regards to Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 24. And the female goddess Ashtoreth is referred to as Elohim, which is the masculine form, by the way, even though she was a goddess, in 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 33. The word Elohim can also refer to heavenly beings or angels. Angels are creatures, and we are not to worship angels, but the term Elohim is sometimes used in reference to angels. In Psalm chapter 8, verse 6, it says, Man is made a little lower than Elohim. This can be translated as God, gods, or heavenly beings. The Septuagint translates the word Elohim as Angeloi, which means angels, and the author of Hebrews renders it as angels in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 7. Also, humans sometimes are called Elohim. For example, judges are called Elohim in Psalm 82, verse 1, and Psalm 82, verse 6. Jesus quoted Psalm 82, verse 6, to give an argument for why it was proper for him to be called the Son of God in John chapter 10, verses 34 to 36. Jesus says in John chapter 10, verses 34 through 36, Jesus answered them, Isn't it written in your law? I said, You are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came, and the scripture can't be broken, do you say of him whom the Father sanctified and sent into the world, You blaspheme because I said I am the Son of God? Jesus is saying that since the Bible calls humans Elohim or God, how much more can Jesus, whom the Father has sent from heaven, be called the Son of God? So in what sense is Jesus called God in John chapter 1, verse 1? Was Jesus a God in the same way angels are called gods? Or is Jesus above the angels and co-equal with the Father in his deity? 
The fact that Jesus made all things shows that he is the creator of all things, and thus, thus he's not just a heavenly being like the angels, but is God himself. So while Jesus is distinct from God the Father and subordinate to God the Father, he is equal in deity with God the Father in that Jesus is the creator of all things and holds all things together, and Jesus is worthy of worship. Not only is Jesus eternal, and not only is Jesus is the, the creator of all things, and not only is he distinct from God the Father, but Jesus is God. Next, light and life are in Jesus. The Word, that is what Jesus is called, uh, in the beginning was the Word. So the Word possessed life. God the Father granted to God the Son to have life in himself. John chapter 5, verse 26. Jesus says in John chapter 5, verse 26, For as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. Since Jesus is eternal, Christians believe that Jesus has eternally proceeded from God the Father. The early church fathers used as an analogy the rays of the sun proceeding from the sun to compare Jesus proceeding from the Father and being one with the Father. Jesus is very God of very God. Jesus gives spiritual life to those who believe in him. John chapter 1 verses 11 through 12 says about Jesus. He came to his own, and those who were his own didn't receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become God's children, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. God the Son, as the word of God, became flesh. He took on human nature and became fully man, without ceasing to be fully God. Jesus is fully God and fully man, but yet one person. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The Word became flesh and lived among us. We saw his glory, such glory as of the one and only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus as God the Son reveals God the Father. Jesus is the only one who has seen God. I'm not even sure that angels have seen God the Father. John chapter 1 verse 18 says, No one has seen God at any time. The one and only Son who is in the bosom of the Father, he has declared him. Next, Jesus is our Savior. John the Baptist said that Jesus is the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. See John chapter 1 verse 29. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission or forgiveness of sins, according to Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22. Lambs were a part of the animal, animal sacrifice practiced in Old Testament times. Jesus is called a lamb because he died on the cross to make atonement for our sins, so our sins can be forgiven. Next, Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Messiah comes from the Hebrew word that means to anoint. When a person was made king, God instructed a prophet to anoint the person with oil and thus make that person king. Today we have a person who gives an oath of office, but in Old Testament times a person became king because God chose that person to be king, become king and God instructed a prophet to anoint him with oil. The promised Messiah was 
the promise of a future king that God would choose to be the king of his kingdom. When a person became king, he became God's adopted son. What does the Son of God mean? In the Gospel of John, the Son of God refers to the Messiah, the King of Israel. Jesus is the Son of God in various ways, but in John, the emphasis is on him being the King of Israel. Jesus is the eternal Word of God, who proceeds from the Father from eternity. Also, Jesus is God's adopted Son as the King of Israel. See Psalm chapter 2, verse 7, and Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, and Acts chapter 13, verses 33 to 34. Now, Jesus is also the Son of God in other ways, but he's also the Son of God uh, by adoption. Psalm 2.7 talks of God adopting the King of Israel as his Son. Psalm 2.7 says, Yahweh said to me, You are my Son. Today I have become your Father. This verse is attributed to Jesus in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 5, which quotes Psalm 2.7. Psalm 2.7 is quoted in reference to God adopting Jesus as his son by raising him from the dead. Paul says in Acts chapter 13, verses 32 to 34, We bring you good news of the promise made to the fathers, that God has fulfilled this to us, their children, and that he raised up Jesus, as it is written in the second psalm, You are my son, today I have become your father. Concerning that he raised him up from the dead, now no more to return to corruption, he has spoken thus, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. Jesus, as the Son of God, is the true Israel. Israel is God's firstborn son, as per Hosea chapter 11, verse 1, and Exodus chapter 4, verse 22. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 14, Matthew applies Hosea 11, verse 1, to Jesus as God's Son. Also, Jesus' physical birth via the Holy Spirit's power is the Son of God regarding his human nature because of the virgin birth according to Luke chapter 1, verse 35. In Psalm 45, verses 6 and 7, the king of Israel is called God, and God anoints God as the king of Israel to be king. In other words, he was God's representative. It wasn't that the king was actually divine or anything. While other kings were not really God, but God's representative, Jesus was in fact God, as the king of Israel. See Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8, where it quotes Psalm 45, verses 6 to 7, in reference to Jesus being God. John chapter 1 talks of the following bearing witness to Jesus being the Messiah. John the Baptist bore witness that Jesus was the Messiah. So did Andrew, Philip, and Nathaniel. First John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus being the Messiah. God called John the Baptist to be a prophet to prepare the way for the Lord, to prepare the way for the Messiah. John the Baptist's job was not to get people to believe in John the Baptist, but to believe in the Messiah. Jews came to John asking him who he was. John said he was not the Messiah. He wasn't the Christ. He, John denied being Elijah the prophet or the spatial prophet like unto Moses that is foretold 
in Deuteronomy chapter 18. John said he fulfilled the prophecy of Isaiah as a voice crying in the wilderness, preparing the way of the Lord. John baptized with water. He spoke of another coming after him that is greater than he was. He was referring to Jesus. John said concerning Jesus that he was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And this prompted two of John the Baptist's disciples to follow Jesus. One of these two was likely John the Apostle, who is the author of the Gospel of John. And the other disciple of John the Baptist is clearly stated to be Andrew, who became a disciple and apostle of Jesus. Andrew introduced Jesus as the Messiah to his brother Peter, who also became a disciple and apostle of Jesus. Jesus then called Philip to follow him. Philip bore witness of Jesus and introduced him to Nathanael. Philip told Nathanael that Jesus was the Messiah. Jesus called Nathanael by name when he met him, and Nathanael asked how he knew him. Jesus replied that he saw him when he was under the fig tree before Philip called Nathanael. Jesus saw something about Nathanael when Jesus was not near to where Nathanael was, and Nathanael knew that this had to be a miracle of some sort, and this, thus Jesus must be the Messiah the Son of God, because he knew this secret about Nathanael. In, in, in introducing others to Jesus, all they needed to say was that Jesus was the Messiah because the foundation had already been laid in the Old Testament promises of the coming Messiah as the anointed king that would reign in righteousness. John further reveals characteristics of this coming Messiah in the Gospel of John, and I'm referring to John as the author of John, not John the Baptist. The Messiah Jesus is the word that reveals God the Father. He was with God in the beginning, and he is God. He is the creator of all things and the source of light and life. Those who believe in in him, in Jesus, and receive him are given the right to be called the children of God. Jesus is the lamb who takes away the sin of the world. Thank you for joining with me and listening to this podcast. Be sure to search the Bible to evaluate all teachers, including me. Check out my website at UpwardJourneyBibleStudy.com where you can learn more about this podcast and other resources for spiritual growth. Always remember to keep God first in your life. I encourage you to pray that God will work in the lives of those who hear this, his word and that people will turn from their sins and become disciples of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to pray that Christians will grow to become better disciples of Jesus Christ. I encourage you to pray that God will work through this podcast ministry to bring others to Christ and to strengthen and establish Christians. Bye for now.